The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. So we're in Galatians chapter 1. We saw last time that Paul said there is no other gospel than the gospel he preached. And, and this week he's going to make the argument that the gospel he received, the gospel he preached, this is not man's gospel. Not only is there no other gospel, this is not a gospel that was invented by man. It didn't come from man, it came from God. And um, turn over to Galatians 1. I want you to sort of put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of the hearers of that century, this would have been read aloud in church. They didn't have Bibles they brought to church. This was written to a church of Galatia. Actually, a number of churches in Asia Minor there. It was to be circulated uh, there. And Paul, he writes this, and he knew it was going to be read aloud. And so if you're sitting in that church service in the first century... And you get a letter from the Apostle Paul who planted your church, who's been gone. You're listening really intently. What's he going to say to us? And so he writes, Paul, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And the church would have said, Amen. Amen. And then he says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And they would have said, What? They would have been shocked. Their ears would have been turned. Paul was getting their attention. You're quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And they would have known exactly who that was. Perhaps they were still in the midst of the church. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you at the beginning when he planted the church, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul gets their attention. And he begins with uh, this, this scathing introduction where he says, you're quickly a traitor to this gospel that you heard. The word deserting, we saw last time, it was used a military terminology of someone who deserted the army, someone who was a traitor in a turncloak. And he says, I'm astonished. My jaw hits the floor when I think about it. Now, these enemies in the church, they, uh, as we're going to see when Paul explains his own ministry and defends himself and how he received the gospel. He really alludes to what these enemies are doing, that they probably had close ties to the Jerusalem church. Perhaps they were people that had come out of the the early church in Jerusalem. Perhaps they were saved at Pentecost or shortly thereafter. 
They represented themselves as the true ambassadors of the mother church. They represented Paul as a renegade evangelist, and they accused Paul of only getting his authority from the Jerusalem apostles, Peter and James and John. And they distorted the message of those great church leaders. They, I rather, they said Paul did. Paul distorted the gospel. So they essentially told the Galatians, the gospel you received, it's a deficient gospel. If you really want to be spiritual, you need to add all these works of the law to your faith. You need to do all these things in addition to believe. And perhaps they argued that they were the ones who were bringing the pure teaching of the mother church in Jerusalem. And so Paul addresses this. He begins his self-defense, his early training in Judaism, his persecution of the church, the radical change that happened to him when he became a follower of Jesus, when Christ was revealed to him, and his immediate obedience to Christ's commission to be his apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, turn over to chapter 2, verse 16. I want you to see this at the end of this large section of Paul's self-defense. He says in in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified, that is declared righteous, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified or declared righteous in the sight of the God. And so Paul essentially says, my defense of myself, of which this takes up a quarter of the letter, the defense of his own ministry and his own apostleship, he says, this defense of myself is really a defense of the gospel. The reason is, is because the gospel I'm preaching and teaching, there is no other gospel. This gospel that these religious leaders are bringing that says you have to add works to grace in order to be justified... It's not a gospel. They're to be anathema. They're to be accursed. They're under the judgment of God. Secondly, this gospel I preach, I didn't receive it from men. I didn't even receive it from the apostles themselves. The Lord Jesus revealed it directly to me. And so it's not man's gospel. I think, too, as Paul explains his testimony He picks out certain things. If we were to read through all the different accounts in the New Testament of Paul's conversion, we see different aspects. And here in Galatians, Paul picks out something very specific. Basically, you see these words, formerly. Formerly, I was a persecutor of the church of God. I was a violent aggressor. I tried to stamp out the church of Jesus Christ. But now, but now, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ bringing this gospel. Well, what made the change? Well, what I was following was man's traditions, but now I have the gospel of God. And the power of the Holy Spirit has changed me. The Lord Jesus appeared to me, and now he's commissioned me to take this gospel to the Gentiles, to the Galatians. And he essentially says to them, You know how terrible this heresy is? You're going from the now what's true in Christ back to the formerly. To use a picture of Romans, you're 
climbing back into the coffin, as it were, and laying alongside that old carcass of the dead man and thinking that's life rather than living in freedom in Christ. It's a terrible heresy. It's a terrible turning away by adding works to grace. It's a deserting of the gospel, he says in chapter 1, verse 6. It's surrendering true Christian freedom for slavery of the law. Remember I read that uh, two weeks ago from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where Moses beat up faithful. He comes alongside of him and he saw that faithful was talking to the first Adam and think he was enamored with all of these works, uh, with all of this old man. And so Moses pummels faithful into the ground, just beats him, beats him and beats him. And then Christian says, well, that's all the law knows how to do. That's the only thing the law can do is to beat you up about your sin and convict you and find you guilty. But remember, there was another character in that story. A man who comes by and says, stop. Tells Moses, no more. Stop beating him. Why? Because it was the Lord Jesus. And his work was finished. And the law no longer has any power to keep us in slavery because we're set free in Christ. That's why the Lord Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And he said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And we can so easily fall back into this mindset of thinking we need to earn God's favor. We need to work in order for God to be pleased with us. And it leads us into slavery again. This is Paul's great concern. How many of us have lived months and weeks and maybe even years under the yoke and slavery of the law, thinking that we're out of God's favor, he's angry with us. It's only just because of his patience and his long-suffering that we even have any place in heaven at all. And we doubt our salvation and we doubt if we're ever useful. We doubt if the Lord will ever use us. We doubt that, that we could ever be uh, grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we'll ever be like him. And we start looking inward and navel-gazing, and all we find is sin and disobedience and rebellion, and we despair. Or we decide to stop examining ourselves, and we get filled with pride, and we start examining others and saying, oh, they're the ones filled with sin. I'd never do that. I'd never say that. I'd never be at that location. I'd never do that activity. And we justify our own sin by condemning others. It's just another kind of slavery. Christ has come to bring the gospel to set us free. And this is what Paul is concerned about. This is what Paul is concerned about with the Galatians. The reason is he lived that way most of his life. He was a Jew of Jews. He was in Judaism. He was the up-and-comer. The philosophical brainiac of that generation who studied under Gamaliel, who was the one who was going to lead the Jewish people religiously into the next generation, the Pharisees anyway. And he lived under that yoke of slavery. And under that yoke of slavery, he violently persecuted the church of Christ, thinking he was bringing glory to God. He says, this is not something to mess around with. This is not something to take lightly. This is a hill to die on in the Christian faith. And so just two points here this morning. 
I'm going to read you uh, verses 11 down to verse 24, the end of chapter 1. But if you want to break it out in your notes, the gospel is true, verses 11, 12, because it comes from God. The gospel is true because it comes from God. And secondly, verses 13 to 24, the gospel is true because it changed Paul's life. We have Paul stating the gospel comes from God, and then we have Paul demonstrating God changed my life through the gospel. This is evidence that it's true. And we could say that this morning. Here we have in in Galatians Paul's life that was changed. But if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, he's changed your life, hasn't he? And you would say the gospel's true. I know it's true. You can't convince me otherwise because it changed my life. I was headed to destruction like we sang. I once was lost in darkest night, but I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life held nothing but the grave. I had no hope, right? But Christ came in. And by the power of the Spirit, our eyes were opened to see who he really is and his glory and his beauty. And we embraced him by faith. And now we're set free. And this message came from God And it has changed lives. For 2,000 years, it's been changing lives. We're on the other side of the planet from Galatia. And this message has come from one person to the next to the next for generations. Down to us here in Knightson. And so he says, the gospel's true because it comes from God, verses 11 and 12. And it's true because it changed Paul's life. So let's read this. I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This gospel is true because it comes from God. Verse 11, it wasn't invented by man. I'd have you know, brothers, this gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not man's gospel. He says, I I love this, after he had rebuked them and said, I'm astonished at you. Notice what he says to them in verse 11. I'd have you know, brethren, brothers and sisters. He, in his mind, even though he is angry with them and frustrated with them, he is not disowning them. He says, I'm astonished you're quickly deserting this gospel that you believed, but he still counts them to be brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so this rebuke is the wounds of a friend that are faithful, that Proverbs speaks of. 
That's one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? To go to someone that you care about and to tell them that you see sin in their life. You see wrong thinking in their life. Many times the reason we're afraid to do it is because we know they're going to take it poorly and we could lose the friendship over it. Maybe permanently. But Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And here Paul, he's writing to them and he says, I'm writing this to you because I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about the direction you're going and I want you to turn back. We've heard it in 2 Corinthians too. The same desire in Paul. He, you know, uh, we heard it last week when, uh, or maybe it was three weeks ago when he was talking about, well, his letters are weighty, but in person he's not very strong. And he said, the reason is, is because I wanted to come to you and not have to rebuke you to your face. I wanted you to accept it in letter first. So that when I came to you, there would be great rejoicing. There'd be a party, in other words, rather than a confrontation and a fight. So he says, brethren, he sees them as family members. He cares about them. He's writing to correct their thinking. And so then he says, this gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. This good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 3. That everyone who believes in him is justified before God the Father has eternal life and forgiveness of sins. This is the good news of the gospel. He says, this gospel I preached, man didn't invent it. It's not man's gospel. It's not man's good news about God. It's God's good news for men and women and children. And so Paul says, Secondly, I didn't receive it from other men. Verse 12, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. And the implication is from a a person, a man. He didn't need to go anywhere to get it from men before he preached it. Nobody witnessed to Paul. I should say no mere human witness to Paul. He didn't read a tract. He didn't go to an evangelistic meeting. No one discipled him. No mere man discipled him. The Lord Jesus discipled him himself our mediator. He didn't even consult with anyone before preaching it in verse 16. He said, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Why is he saying all of this? Well, evidently his opponents said, hey, that gospel Paul's preaching, he got it from Peter and James and John and he's messed it up. He distorted it. We have the true gospel, these Judaizers were saying. And so Paul says, no, 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 let me clarify something for you. I received this message directly from the Lord Jesus himself. He's the one who commissioned me. He's the one who put me into ministry to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And why is this so important? Because Paul is telling the Galatians, you can trust this gospel that I preach to you. You can rest all of your weight and your hope, your life, your soul, your eternity on it. This is the true gospel. And he says in verse 12, I received it directly from a revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice how he says it here. Uh, I love this. He says, verse 12, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, he who set me apart, who is the Father, 
before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. So God the Father set Paul apart before he was born, called him by his grace, revealed his son to Paul. This revelation of Jesus Christ in order that Paul might preach Christ among the Gentiles. And then he says over in uh, chapter 3, how did you receive the gospel? Chapter 3, verse 2. Did you receive it by the Spirit of God or by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the, the, the conclusion is, well, of course we receive the gospel by the Spirit which is associated with the hearing by faith. And so Paul, all of the Trinity is at work in Paul's calling. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, by implication. He doesn't say it in chapter 1, but surely he means it in his theology in chapter 2 when he says that we receive the Spirit of God by faith, that we're converted by grace through faith, and it's in the Spirit's working in us to reveal Jesus Christ to us, and this is the Father's good plan. This gospel came from God the Father himself through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's referring to his Damascus Road experience. Listen to Charles Spurgeon on this. Why is this important? If these things come to us from God, we can safely rest our all upon them. If they come to us from men, they would probably fail us at a crisis. Did you ever trust men and not regret it before the sun was down? Did you ever rely on an arm of flesh without discovering that the best of men are but men at the best? But if these things come from God, they are eternal and all sufficient. We can both live and die upon the everlasting gospel. Let us deal more and more with God and with him only. If we've obtained light from him, there's more of blessing to be had. Let us go to that same teacher that we may learn more of the deep things of God. Let us bravely believe in the success of the gospel that we've received. We believe in it. Let us believe for it. We will not despair, though the whole visible church should apostatize. What a glorious hope. I know this is simple. This is like the ABCs of the Christian life, but it's kind of like playing baseball. The reason you catch every single practice is to get the fundamentals down. The ABCs. And the gospel itself, we may think of it as the ABCs, but really it is the foundation. It is everything in the Christian life. We never depart from it. We never get beyond it. It's not like we set this aside and we go on to more, you know, deeper eccentric things that I studied in my PhD. That's not what it's like. We live out of the gospel. We rely upon the gospel day by day. This is the only thing that's going to bring joy and hope to you today. No matter what you're going through. Whether it's suffering that you didn't intend to inflict upon yourself but came upon you. Sickness, illness, broken relationships. Or whether it's sin that you caused upon yourself because of dumb decisions. The only answer is the gospel of Christ. It's the only thing that's going to bring you hope today. It's the only thing that's going to lift your head when you're in the midst of darkness, to know that there is a God in heaven who loves you and gave his son for you. And he's poured out his spirit so that you'll never be abandoned, you'll never be orphaned, you'll never be alone. You're not alone today, child of God. You have the spirit of God dwelling inside of you. 
and the Lord Jesus is at the Father's right hand and he's praying for you and pleading for you right now. That's the good news of the gospel. May we never depart from it. Never leave it. Well, it changed Paul's life. Verses 13 to 24, he says in verses 13 and 14, I was formerly a persecutor of the church and a Jew of Jews. And they went hand in hand. Before Paul came to Christ, he was one of the most violent enemies of Christ and Christians. The magnitude of his sin is seen in the, in the New Testament in three descriptions. In Acts 26, he says, I was a blasphemer. In Acts 22, and in this passage, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. I was a violent, insolent person. And in Acts 22, he also said, essentially, I had outrageous disregard for other man's rights. People made in the image of God. I had outright disregard. I wanted to crush them all out of existence. That is not a resume that you want to have. And yet he says, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. Why was Paul a humble man? Because he knew the magnitude of his sin and his life apart from Christ. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But, verse 10, by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. You see, God's grace is never in vain. When God calls us and saves us and delivers us from our sin, it's not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. So he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy in myself, but by God's grace, I am what I am. I am what I am. Turn over to Acts 26. Acts 26, verses 9 to 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He wasn't going to let him get away. Turn back to chapter 22 of Acts. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Wow. Then look at verses 19 and 20. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. 
You see, back, back in verse 3 of chapter 22, we see him as the honor student. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as you all are to this day. He was, he was the honor student. He was the, the uh, valedictorian, as it were. He says, and this is in all of my fervency and zealousness, I persecuted the church of God. I was a violent persecutor of the church, but I was radically changed by Christ. Turn back to Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16. But when he who set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, he says, the father revealed his son to me. This is what happened. Of course, we know the story from Acts. He's on the road. We, we just heard it. He was on the road to Damascus, ready to drag Christians in, put them in jail, bring them back to Jerusalem so they could be put to death. He was the bounty hunter, seeking them out, making sure none of them got away. And on that road, the Lord Jesus knocked him off his donkey. Right? And he blinds him with his beauty and he speaks to him and he says Saul why are you persecuting me and he says who are you Lord that I'm persecuting him he says I'm Jesus but now you're going to be my witness to the Gentiles Paul says this is I found grace and his grace toward me was not in vain remember he says why are you kicking against the goads And so he goes from that road changed, converted, a new man because the father revealed his son to Paul. And notice the focus here in Galatians 1 on on the father's initiative. God sets him apart, verse 15. This was even before he was born. He was set apart. It reminds me of Jeremiah 1, verse 6, when Jeremiah the prophet is set apart before his birth to be a prophet. God calls him by his grace There in verse 15, the one who called me by his grace. And this calling refers to the historical point in time that God brought Paul to repentance on the road to Damascus. And he put faith in Jesus Christ. And he called him through his grace. And this grace, it shows God's undeserved favor toward Paul. And we know in Paul's case, it was undeserved. He was a violent persecutor of the church. But rather than getting judgment, what he deserved, he got grace. And isn't this true of us? If we're honest with ourselves, what we deserved was punishment and judgment. And in Christ, we receive grace. We get what we don't deserve. Grace upon grace. God was pleased to do this. It shows his good pleasure. Look at what he says in verse 16. The father was pleased to reveal his son in me. His son to me. He was pleased to do it. It brought the father joy. God's arm wasn't twisted to save Paul. It wasn't like he said, oh man, that Paul, he's such a good student. Man, he is so smart, I could really use him on my side. I guess I'll save him. That's not what God said. Even though Paul deserved to be wiped and nuked off the planet, God was pleased to reveal the Lord Jesus to Paul. 
to save him and say, I'm going to make you an instrument in my hand to preach my son's names to the ends of the earth. Child of God, the father was pleased to save you. He was pleased to reveal his son to you. When that happened, you remember that day? You remember that time in your life when you saw Jesus for who he really was, that he wasn't just a curse word? That he wasn't just some man in history, but he is the Lord of glory and your savior? You remember that day when you embraced him by faith and you were saved and forgiven and all your sins were washed away? It pleased the father to reveal his son to you. It brought him great joy. He's working his plan and it brought him great joy. You should rest in that fact this morning that the father is delighted in you. He gave his son for you. He united you to his son. It pleased him to reveal his son to you. And this morning, it pleases him to reveal the son and his glory to you so that you would go from this meeting today and you would rest secure in Christ. It would make the father greatly happy if you would rest in his son and stop trying to earn the father's favor by doing good things he's not a father like those on earth he's a perfect father in heaven so paul was radically changed and then he receives his commission directly from christ verses 16 to 24 Notice some interesting things here that he says. First, God revealed his son. He came to know Jesus as the son of God, no longer as just the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says that he revealed his son to me. Paul saw Christ in the light externally, but on the other hand, internally, he gained a new understanding of Jesus Christ. This is inner transformation. And then he was saved for a purpose, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. We also were saved for a purpose that we might preach Christ among our community, among the nations, that we would make disciples. That's why we're here. We can do everything else better in heaven. Everything else. No more sin, no more suffering, no more tears. But we're here for a mission and a purpose to preach this good news of Christ, to be the Father's ambassadors, to plead with people, be reconciled to God. Don't put it off. Be reconciled to him. And according to Acts 9, this is what Paul did. He, he went to Damascus. And then apparently here in, in Galatians, he left Damascus at some point. He went to Arabia. And perhaps it was like the, the prophet uh, Moses or the other prophets like Elijah who went into the wilderness to commune with God and study what the Old Testament scriptures taught about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Then he returns to Damascus, he says. And Paul's point here is that for years before he ever went to Jerusalem, he was preaching this gospel message in Damascus and Arabia. There were no other apostles in Damascus or in Arabia that we know of in church history. And so that's his point. He's saying, I began this commission before I ever talked to those guys up in Jerusalem. Eventually, he did go to Jerusalem, and he talks about that. Three years after his conversion was the first time he went. Even then, he saw Peter and James. He was only there 15 days. But imagine what that 15 days was like. These guys talking about their experiences with Jesus. Imagine for Paul what it was like. 
as he says, the apostle born out of due time. He didn't follow Jesus when he was on the earth. He became an apostle after Christ was raised. And so as Peter's telling him the stories of, hey man, I walked on water. You won't believe this. I was there when he fed the 5,000. You won't believe what he said. He told me, get behind me, Satan. He called me Satan. (laughs) What a joy it must have been as they talked about their experiences with Jesus. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 15. He speaks of James and, and Peter in the list of those who saw the risen Christ. And then Paul mentions Syria and Cilicia down in Galatians 1 verse uh, 21. And this is to prove he didn't hear the gospel anywhere else in the church either. There weren't apostles that taught him. Why is he belaboring this point? He's belaboring this point because he wants them to see that this gospel is not man's gospel. This gospel is from God and it changed my life. Because that's what he he concludes in verse 23. When he went back to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, when they heard about him rather, verse 23, they heard it said, he who used to persecute the church is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That was his reputation in Judea, in Jerusalem. And then he says, and they glorified God because of me. That's one of the best things about baptism services about hearing people's testimonies. It is a means of grace. It is a means for us to hear God's work in our midst and for us to glorify God because of his work in that person. Isn't it a joy? Whenever you hear someone's testimony and how God saved them and changed them, it is a joy. Last week at the pastor's conference, I I had the privilege to speak in one of the breakout sessions about uh, God the Father, my PhD subject. And um, I grew up at that church at Community Bible in Vallejo. And so it was really fun because I spoke to all these pastors and I might have been tempted to some pride and wow, man, I'm speaking to all these pastors. This is incredible. And then all the people I grew up with were, were just in shock that someone could use a kid from Vallejo Like, you're from Vallejo, and you were up there, and you were actually answering those questions. And uh, my dear brothers and sisters that that I grew up with, to them it was a shock. Man, Ryan, we knew you when you were a kid. I can't believe you can actually speak that way. (laughs) Uh, My nickname used to be Rude Ryan to them. But why does, why does Paul speak of all of these things? I, just let's, in closing, let's turn to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 17. Paul writes to Timothy. Uh, let's start in verse 12. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He says this, verse 15, this statement is trustworthy. It's true. It's deserving full acceptance. In other words, you need to memorize this. You need to repeat it to yourself over and over and fully accept it into your life, into your mind, into your thinking, in your worldview so that it's instinctual. So that when you're pressed by the cares of life, this is what you think about. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. When you're in the midst of disobedience and sin, when you think you need to clean yourself up before you get back to church because you're too embarrassed to talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ because you've been a real dummy, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's not the healthy but sick who need a physician. Isn't this good news? He came to save sinners, real sinners. He saved a punk Vallejo kid like me. A thug who was a bully and beat up kids in the elementary school ages. I was a jerk. I was full of anger. Full of anger. And he saved me. And he changed me. And I'm not the same. And I look at people I grew up with in Vallejo and they're in jail or they're dead. And by God's grace, he saved me at a young age and delivered me from all of that. That's to the praise of his glory. It's not because I'm great. I'm an idiot. I need the spirit of God to constantly teach me to stop being so stupid. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is why he came. And when Paul says of whom I'm the worst, of whom I'm the foremost, he's not thinking that's hyperbole, that he's just using exaggeration because he says, there's a reason God saved me as the worst sinner ever. That in me, someone could know if, they, if God saved the apostle Paul, he can save me. That's what he says. Verse 16, I received mercy for this reason. The reason God didn't wipe Paul out with a lightning bolt or an earthquake or whatever, choose your means of destruction. The reason God granted mercy and grace to Paul was because in Paul, as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example. In other words, as hope to you and to me. To all those who are to believe in him for eternal life. That if he saved Paul, he can save me. What a glorious thought. This is why Paul writes it to the Galatians. This is why Paul rehearses his testimony. He's not just morbid. He's he's not just simply airing his dirty laundry. He's giving a purpose in it to say, this is why I brought the gospel to you. And this is good news that you can bank your life on. And don't ever leave it. Don't ever abandon it. Don't ever turn away from it and go to some other gospel that says you have to have faith plus works. If Jesus can save the worst, that is Paul, there is hope for all sorts, for all conditions of men and women. There's hope for you this morning. You haven't out the grace of God. You haven't. 
You're still alive and you're here. And grace is available to you in Christ. And you can come to him and receive it by faith. You can be washed clean and washed new. Teenager, you've grown up in this church. Turn to Christ. Don't put it off. And Paul ends in verse 17 to the king of the ages. The immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Good doctrine produces good doxology. This is why we believe it's so important to teach good doctrine. It's why Frank's doing systematic theology on Sunday nights. It's not that you all need a seminary education. You all need good doctrine so that you'll praise God rightly. This praise of the transcendence of God, it seems odd at first, right? I mean, Paul's saying, I receive mercy and then I'm praising God for his transcendence. He's the immortal, invisible, only God. King of the ages. Why does he say this? Because it is a marvel. It is a marvel that the immortal, wise, only God, who's the king of the ages, would send his son to save sinners and a marvelous display of glory. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, who was a slave trader before he came to Christ. Think of the shame and guilt he carried. He traded people for money. He got rich buying and selling people made in the image of God. This is what he said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen to that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He pulled that right from Paul. Isaac Watts, we sang one of his hymns this morning, the first song we sang. Here's another hymn. He, uh, thinking of, of this reality of the finished work of Christ and um, thinking about our, our works and how we ought not to boast in them. He writes this, No more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties I've done. I quit the hopes I held before that all those duties would be worth something. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Now for the loss I bear his name. What was my gain I count my loss. My former pride I call my shame. And nail my glory to his cross. Yes and I must I will esteem all things but loss for Jesus sake. Oh may my soul be found in him and of his righteousness partake. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne. But faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. You know what he's talking about there? He's quoting Paul. Paul, I was, everything that once was gain I now count but loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his, of his sufferings. That I may be found like him, Paul says. I, it's somewhere. I, I take the author of Hebrews to heart when he said, one, a man once said somewhere. If that's inspired text, I think I can say, a man once said somewhere. But listen to what he says here. He says, this mentality of I need to earn God's favor and I need to do these good works so that God will be happy with me. 
He says, I need to say, I boast no more of that stuff. The best obedience of my hands, it dares not appear before your throne, Father. But faith, faith can answer your demands by pleading what my Lord has done. You see, we don't take our works and bring them to the Father so that he will declare us righteous. The Lord Jesus finished the work and brings himself before the Father and says, declare my son, my daughter righteous. My sister, my brother, righteous. Declare them righteous because of my finished work, Father. That's the finished work of the Lord Jesus for us. That's what we rest in. That's what we hope in. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we pray about and sing about and trust in. And we need to remind ourselves of this day in and day out. Because our default switch is legalism. And it not only affects us, it affects others. It affects our brothers and sisters because when we have the mindset of a legalist, we don't preach the gospel to them and remind them what's true in Christ. When we have the mindset of a legalist, we condemn them and judge them for the sins that are in their life. That we think we're better because we don't do those things. How we need to remember that statement. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I once was lost, but now I'm found. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Father, thank you for this word. I thank you that this gospel came from you. Man didn't invent it. No one thought this up and thought this would be a good way to, to, to sell a religion. Father, you revealed this good news in your son. And you have been changing lives for 2,000 years, Father. You saved me and you changed my life. I thank you. I praise you for that. You've changed lives in our midst, in our community, in this body of believers. We've seen it. We've witnessed it. That you have taken those who were your enemies and running from you and you saved them. You stopped them in their tracks and you brought them to Christ. And they publicly professed faith in you and they were baptized and they're a member of this church and they're serving the people of God, desiring to see this gospel go out to our community, to their family, to their friends, their co-workers, their loved ones. Do a work. Use us, Father. May this truth be driven down deep in our hearts. Drive it home to our hearts that you are pleased with us in Christ. That you, in your grace and your mercy, gave us a son and you've poured out your spirit. We'll never be alone. We'll never be forsaken. We'll never be abandoned. We'll never be separated from your love. Father, it should cause us then to live not out of duty, but out of delight in Christ. And the works we now do, we do by faith. We do by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. It's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. Thank you for loving us. We love you. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.